0: What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future passion. Explore paths to careers that will excite and motivate you. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu to find out how to connect to your future.
1: Hello, my name is John Smetanka. The name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest, and with respect, is a guest from a prior show, which is uh, extremely interesting, uh, what he's going to be talking about today. It's John Shulian, who is a nationally recognized sports writer and commentator for many years. And we've talked about uh, the fascinating people he met in the world, for example, of boxing and other sports. Today, we're going to be talking about a different area of his life, sort of a radical change, and that is his work in Hollywood. John Shulian, with respect. John, how are you today?
0: Well, I'm upright, so that counts for something, I hope.
1: It does, actually. Um, it does keep away the undertaker, and it keeps away uh, flies, I suppose. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a good time to be standing upright. So, John, um, we talked last time about your background, how you got into writing, uh, how you got into journalism, sports, both as an actor, a player, and also later on as a writer, uh, giving all kinds of uh, openings and uh, to meeting interesting people and learning, for example, the the area of boxing. But today, I'd like to talk about how did you go out in Hollywood? How did you end up in Hollywood, which is where you where you ended up? Where you're at now? Tell us about that. Where did you, what what happened? How what what taught you? Uh, the lesson is, you need to go out to Hollywood after dealing with boxers and basketball players and baseball players.
0: Well, I I'd I, I learned how to take a lot of punishments over the years. So <laughs>
1: if,
0: if a writer wants to be punished, he comes to Hollywood. So that's what um, really, I, I was right around. Uh, I made the the decision on the the night of my fortieth birthday. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, uh, I had covered a 76ers basketball game in Philadelphia. I was working as a sports columnist at the Philadelphia Daily News at the time. And my subject for the evening was Moses Malone, who was not very communicative uh, when I interviewed him. So I just went back and winged it. And so I'm driving home through a snowstorm, and I'm thinking, I'm 40 years old. And I'm still interviewing naked men about the games they just played. There's no great import, really. Um, And I'm tired of bumping heads with coaches. Athletes are becoming harder and harder to talk to. Um, The newspaper business was just beginning to change. I mean, the newspapers have been dying for a long time. And they were simply picking up steam, as we've seen the evidence scattered around our country. Um, I said, I've got to do something else for a living, or try to, at least. And I said, well, what's the one thing I can do in life? I can write. That's, so where can I write if it's not for a newspaper or a magazine? Hollywood. Sure, I can do that. <laughs> I can I can at least try. So anyway, I reached out to a friend Uh, who had stayed in touch with a woman we'd worked with in Chicago. Uh, And she'd come to work at the L.A. Times as a photographer. And she had married a a TV writer, a bright young man named Jeff Melvoin, Harvard-educated, wonderful guy. And I got on the phone with Jeff Melvoin, and he gave me 45 minutes of his time, which is an eternity by Hollywood standards. And he was warm and funny and receptive and, and smart. And he said, well, we really hit it off on the phone. He said, well, the next time you come to L.A., I want you to give me a call and we'll get together for dinner. So I covered the Hearns hagler fight, classic fight, greatest fight I ever covered in April of 1985. And then I called Jeff Melvoy and said, I'm coming to L.A. To, to, tomorrow. And he said, well, great, I've been waiting for you. At, uh, at 10 in the morning, you're going to go meet a vice president at uh, MTM Films, which was then the hottest TV production company in the business. They were doing Hill Street Blues, Mary Tyler Moore, um, St. Elsewhere. And then in the afternoon, you're going to go meet the head of development at Geffen Films. So, And both of those meetings went swimmingly, and then Jeff and I, bunch went to dinner that night. And while we're talking, he explained to me, he said, everybody gets into Hollywood a different way. There is no one set path. And I was about to discover that. And I was incredibly lucky. So I said, what if I wrote Stephen Botchko a letter and just introduce myself and see what he thinks about my chances? And Jeff said, do it. Stephen Boschko, for those who don't remember him, was the creator of Hill Street Blues, or co-creator with Michael Kozol of Hill Street Blues, a show that really revolutionized television storytelling. Handheld cameras, uh, constant movement of the camera, multiple storylines in one-hour episodes. Brilliant show. Um, It it was the beginning of uh, a wonderful change in television that I think they, that you saw the most re, the most recent example of what Hill Street's children have wrought um, uh, would be the wire which to my way of thinking is the greatest television series ever um, anyway I wrote by I, I was getting ready to go cover Wimbledon in 85 so I wrote Stephen Uh, A letter sent him a copy of a book I'd done, a collection of my boxing stories, and a profile of Mike Royko, the great Chicago newspaper columnist, that I'd written for GQ. Went off to Wimbledon, came home, found a letter from Bochko saying um, that he got my book and he promised to read it, but he wanted me to know that a lot of journalists think they can write for the screen, but a lot of journalists can't. But if I was still interested, to let him know, and he'd send me some Hill Street scripts to study. So I wrote back and said, nobody in newspapers or magazines had ever answered a letter of mine as quickly as he did. Please send the scripts. Then I went off on vacation for a couple weeks. And I came home, and here was a large envelope with three Hill Street scripts and a letter from Bochco that now hangs on the wall here in my office. And It says, basically... You're John Shulian. You're a terrific writer. If you can't write for the screen, I'll be surprised and disappointed. And if I ever get this show about lawyers off the ground, I'll have you come out and write a script for money. P.S. You type great. I didn't spot a single do-over in your letter. <laughs> and Steven had just left Hill Street Blues and was now at 20th Century Fox, and he was developing the series, as you may have heard of, L.A. Law. I
1: have, and, yeah.
0: And he was working with a former lawyer named Terry Louise Fisher. And, he, and almost a year to the day after I received that letter, I was out at, at, at his, in his office in the old writer's building at, at Fox, on the Fox lot, um, in a story meeting about the script that I was going to write. I was going to write the ninth episode of L.A. Law. And I was utterly petrified. I, I went in there. I was in so far over my head. I did not know TV writing. I did not know the law. I could, probably could even give you my name, rank, and serial number at that point. <laughs> um, but after I sat there paralyzed for five or ten minutes, I thought to myself, Dummy, what have you always done when people smarter than you were talking? You take notes, and so I took notes all day about the different things that would happen in this episode—an episode about a trust fund for the poor people of Beverly Hills. Um, and at the end of the day, Stephen showed me a what's called a beat sheet. It's a step-by-step, scene-by-scene outline. Of what will be in the script itself, and it's going to be fairly detailed. They can be short, they can be long. Mine was going to be as detailed as I could make it because I wanted—I did not want to work without a net, and I'm pretty sure Stephen didn't want me to either. So if this—if I—if I didn't deliver the goods, he would still have something to rely on as a as a guidepost for the next writer up. So. Um, I came back a couple days later with my beat sheet. We went over it. We made some changes. Change is a constant player in screenwriting. You're always making adjustments, it seems. And so he he was taking a flyer on three untested TV writers at this time. One of them was a woman whose name I forget. And there was me the sports writer from Philadelphia. And lastly was a young lawyer from Boston named David Kelly, who any devout TV watcher will be able to tell you did Allie McBeal, Boston Legal, um, uh-uh, picket fences, on and on. I mean, and, he, and he married Michelle Pfeiffer in the bargain. So David did quite well.
1: What's wrong with that life?
0: <laughs> and so now... I see how Stephen had got the script from the, the, the lady the lady uh, trial, uh, the, the female member of our trio of uh, budding TV writers, and it was not a good experience for him. And I saw how deflated he was, and I said, look, I don't want to waste your time or mine. I said, what if I go off and I write... Six of the scenes from the episode we had worked on, my episode. And and if you like them, I'll proceed and do the rest of the script. And if you don't like them, we will part as friends. And he said, that's fine. So I went off. I was every night I was staying someplace different. To Steve. I'd stay at friends' apartments. And then I was using up all my Hyatt hotel points I garnered over the years. Traveling as a sports writer. And I worked on these six scenes for, I'd say, two or three days. And then put came back on a Friday afternoon, gave them to Stephen, and he said, he, he promised he'd call me, uh, let me know how, what he thought of them. So uh, the next day was a Saturday, so I was out horsing around in L.A. Came back to my friend's apartment. Uh... Saw the message light blinking, played the message, and it was Bochco. And he said, I don't know what you're doing hanging around with sports writers, kid. You're in show business.
2: Mm-hmm. And I was
0: in show business. I went off, went back to Philadelphia. I finished writing the script from there. In the middle of the script, my dad died. I dealt with that. Bochco was just totally cool with everything. He was So supportive. I mean, I really, I I owe him a great debt. I owe many people in the course of my various careers um, a debt. I've always had incredibly good luck finding people or being found, um, people who encouraged me and gave me the room to do what I needed to do. And uh, Stephen died a few years ago of brain cancer.
1: He was a w- really a wonderful guy to me. Wow, that's that's a fascinating progression, and I can understand people in our audience who are saying, "Well, I could never do that. I could never make that jump. Uh, I would be scared to death." But you were as a, an ordinary, scared to death human being taking a big jump in their in in their life, uh, you, and. Just like ordinary people, uh, you being a superstar, of course, you're not ordinary, um, but ordinary people come to different points in their lives, and they're, convent, they're confronted with the big leap. It's kind of the Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Can I take this big step? Can I, can I make it, or am I going to fall in the cliff, down the cliff, and die? And uh, it's the leap of faith, the trust uh, that you're either your ability or uh, the need of the other people around you, or the intervention, the divine intervention that you you're gonna you're going succeed. We're going take a break uh-huh. right. We're going to take a break right now. We're come back. we're going to talk more about how you took advantage of these uh, these uh, chances that you were given and, and what you did with them and your future career this is john smetanka we're talking to john shulian uh, not only a uh... An eminence grease in the sports world but also uh... in hollywood and he's just taken the step to work with steven Bochko and, uh, and various programs that we're going to find out how many we know of uh... will be talking with him in just a minute after we take a break uh, this is With Respect, and this is John Smetanka. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect, With John Shulian, sports writer, sports columnist, and now we find out find him in a wholly different world—the world of Hollywood and television and whatever else is out there. Uh, This is John Smetanka, and this is with respect. So, John, you took the big step. You 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 took you know you use your default mechanism, which you took notes and you paid attention to other people and to events around you. But you're now been told by one of the great uh, Hollywood TV personalities in a uh, dominant person uh, Steve Bochko uh, that you're now an entertainment writer what happened from there
0: well uh, I, um, I went off uh, I, I, my hand had been held throughout the LA Logs series by a A young writer, everybody was at least 10 years younger than I was. I was, I think, 41 when I came out here. So right away I saw a headline in Variety saying, Writers over 40 can't get work in TV. And I thought, holy smokes, I'm I'm dead on arrival. But as it turned out, middle-aged guys, people, writers, not guys. I can't say guys anymore because there are many, many wonderful female writers who have always done good work out here, great work. Um, but uh, my, I had a young fellow named Jacob Epstein. He was a wonderful guy, very, very smart. He'd worked on Hill Street Blues and come over to L.A. Law with Bochco. Um And he, Jacob and I hit it off, became good friends. And he was lobbying hard for me to get on staff. He tried to convince Boschko that I could do it. And I, I knew in my heart of hearts that I would be, I mean, I would certainly have tried it if the job had been offered to me, but I would have been overmatched. So as it turned out, Stephen said, you know, Stephen being very smart and canny enough to, to, to realize what I what I knew about myself too, said, He'd send me over to Universal to work with his the guy, who was his mentor, a wonderful old Hollywood character named Bill Sackheim. So I went over there, but but before Sackheim and I could get anything going, I get a call from Jacob Epstein, and he said, "In two hours, Miami Vice is going to call you. They're doing a, a two part, two two parter, uh, which is two episodes back to back about boxing." And I told him about you, and I think you'll be perfect. So the phone rings two hours later. It's a guy named Mike Duggan, who I'd met at Jacob's 30th birthday party. And he said, come on over. So I went over, and I met a young writer-producer who was running the writing staff at Miami Vice, Dick Wolf, who went on to create the law and order franchise <laughs> and every week there's a dump truck full of money that just pulls up to his house and dumps it <laughs> in the driveway, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but they were doing these two episodes on boxing. So he, he had a beat sheet already. He said, go over this and tell me what you think. And I said, well, this would be a little bit different. And that would that just wouldn't happen. We made three or four changes. And then he said, okay, it's Saturday afternoon and we need a script by, uh, Tuesday. And I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, um, he, that he would write episodes, excuse me, Acts one and four, and I would write Acts two and three and we would be <laughs> Tuesday. So I, I, once again, I, Went to the hotel I'd stayed at a lot—a place called the Park—and um, uh, and wrote my my two acts and gave them to Dick, and he liked them, and we got them off. And we're, this we were putting together simply a, a script that would that you could do location scouting and casting and those sort of things as part of pre-production. Then Dick and I went back and polished up the script a great deal, and it turned out to be a pretty good two pretty good episodes. We used Don King as the pro, a boxing promoter, much like himself. We used Mark Breland, the old Olympic champion, and we used Randall Tex Cobb, who is notorious mainly for for through fighting Larry Holmes and not landing a punch. I think. <laughs> But the, but Tex was wonderful in this, and Tex was always also in raising Arizona and all kinds of things. And he became the first man I killed on television. So
1: <laughs> I'm sure his family appreciated that.
0: Well, they appreciate the residual check or the residual check. <laughs> um, and and anyway, and then you know, and then Dick Dick. Well, I remember Dick Wolf walked into my office where I was temporarily lodged there in building 69 at Universal and he said I don't know where you learned how to do this but you know how to get into a scene and out of a scene and so we, we did the second half of the two-parter and the next thing I knew I was on staff they hired me as a staff writer with a bump up to story editor after I'd been around for a few episodes and My trajectory went something like this. In June of 1986, I was a sports columnist at the Philadelphia Daily News with no television writing credits or experience. I had never written a script in my life. And by December of 1986, I had writing credits on, I had three writing credits on two of the hottest shows in television. I had my L.A. Law episode, which Boschko had re- rewritten significantly, and that made it incredibly better than what I had done. But he made sure that I got full payment for the script. And then I did the two episodes with Dick, and then I sat down to write my first maiden voyage, or my first solo effort, rather. Uh, and... Um, You know, and and there we were. We were off to the races. And I would tell this. People would ask me how I got into business. And I would tell them this story that I'm telling you now. And they would just shake their heads in wonderment because I worked with really, really wonderful writers. And there were guys who had spent 10 years working as pool men to keep their head above water. No pun intended. <laughs> um, and, or, or they. One guy had been an assistant golf pro for a while. Somebody else was an electrical engineer. Lots of the ex-lawyers come to write work in Hollywood and, and write for the screen, both the big screen and little screen. Um, so, you know. But, but my my story sort of took the cake. Um, as far as being unlikely. I mean, I I think it's, um, you know, it was just something I had to do, though, John. Um, If I was not happy working in Philadelphia, I was recently divorced. um, I just, there were many, many things going on in my life. And I, I think if I, and I always felt that if I had failed, making the jump to Hollywood, I wasn't going to hurt anybody but myself. I was not married. I had no children. And I was the only one who was going to get scuffed up. And if I if I did, I would simply pick myself up, dust myself off, and go back to work in newspapers and magazines.
1: Well, <clears throat> well you know, one of the things that was happening at the same time was that your... Possible paymasters in journalism were dying. The media, <laughs> <coughs> well, the um, newspapers were beginning to take, uh, take financial and, and journalistic hits um, and have been to this day. So I would imagine that you were kind of ahead of the, the wave uh, and riding, that rode you out to uh, Hollywood uh, and behind that wave was uh, maybe not so big a market.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think some people in newspapers gave me credit for being able to see all of this.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and I and I certainly didn't. I, I I didn't think well, the newspaper business is shrinking. Um, but th- but I would after I had to come out here and. and you know, settled down, bought a home, and it was, it was getting good work on good shows. Um Then the people would say, well, you really had it figured out. I said, I didn't have anything figured out. I just wanted to try it. I mean, I've been, always been fascinated by movies. My dad used to take me to a, a second run theater when I was a kid here in LA. And, um, you know, I was watching Stagecoach and His Girl Friday and, uh, you know, the, the Big Sleep. I was watching movies like that when I was 10 years old. I was getting an education in film without even realizing
1: it. Front Page? Did you watch Front Page?
0: I, you know, I've never seen Front Page, but I, 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 uh, I, I've seen... You know his girl Friday, which is the yeah same the thing. with Cary Grant and Ralph wow. Bellamy and Rosalind Russell. Is it Rosalind Russell, Russell? Am mm-hmm.
1: I blanking? Yep. Well, you know, th- th- this is interesting because I am sure that those of us who have been riding our own waves of what is possible, what is, what can I, what am I good for, what can I do. Uh, and those of us who have come to, as I have, uh, a blank wall, and said, you know, I remember the first blank wall that I came to that I can recall was I had to uh, handle uh, an appeal, of, uh, a habeas corpus case for a guy who I had believed, and I still believe, and it was verified, didn't commit the crime that he committed, that he was probably that he was convicted for, and. The reason I mention this is because there I was happy to work as an in, kind of an investigating attorney, putting the case together that he didn't do it. But at one point I came to uh, having to file a habeas corpus in federal court, which I had never done uh, from the side of a petitioner. I, I answered some of them, but uh, at any rate, I can I tried to find anybody I could to write it for me, to take the case, and they wouldn't. No one took it. So I decided, uh, took heart in mouth and, and fate in hand, and, and I did it. And we were successful eventually. It took us some years. But the point here is we all come to those points when it's do I take the, the leap? Do I take the jump? Uh, this world that I'm, I'm facing is something I haven't done before. And I haven't been in before, and so now what do we do? And uh, so this, this whole story to this point, uh, is very familiar to many of us, many of us., anyway, We're going to take a break right now. When we come back when to talk about individual shows and different people that you came across. You've already talked about some interesting folks, um, but um, there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, This is John Smetanka. We're talking to John Shulian, and this is on With Respect. We're talking about his leap from being a sports writer par excellence into a Hollywood screenwriter, and we'll find out more after that. This uh, is With Respect, and we'll be right back. back on with respect with john Schulian, uh, a great sports writer and sports columnist nationally and now we're talking about his work as a screenwriter apparently with no logical connection but <laughs> but life has made it work for him so uh this is john smetanka so now you've you've been called upon to try something that you had never done before You have been uh, given mentors, life has given you some mentors who you impressed and they impressed you uh, with shaping your future. You've done in that period from January until I think it was December, you've accomplished so much and now what happens? You're on your way. And you've got well, a you've got a filmography. You've got a you've got a book of business, as we would say in the law.
0: Well, you, you know, it's a it's a job, and there are, I had so much to learn. There are things I wish I'd done differently. I wish I'd paid more attention to certain aspects of the business, not the things that didn't have so much to do with writing as they did with just the post production and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I I stayed with Miami Vice, I finished season three, I think I did the last 13 episodes on Vice, out of a 20, an order of 22, and we started season four, and I wrote the season, what was supposed to be the season premiere, I'm not sure if it was or not, but it was, uh, uh... Ryan Dennehy, and he played a crooked TV evangelist. If you can imagine that, um, <laughs> it was it was it turned out to be a good episode. Um, but then I I blew out my back, and I wound up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And uh, when I came when when I came back, Dick Wolf had been fired. A, a mistake that was soon righted, and they brought Dick back and. Had to pay him an, an inordinate amount of money, uh, and but I, I didn't know that I wanted to go back to to that. I wanted to try something different, so I went to work on a show called uh, The Slap Maxwell Story, and Slap was of all things a sports columnist,
2: mm-hmm.
0: played by Dabney Coleman, a wonderful actor. He may remember as the boss in Nine to Five. He, the girls, uh, Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, and Lily Tomlin, time to the ceiling fan and have him spinning around on it. Um, I remember it. But, and, but, and Dabney was um, a, 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 a difficult case. Um, <laughs> I remember one day we did a uh, little location shooting, which was uh, not very common on half-hour comedies. We were a dramedy, so maybe that made a difference. But Dabney came up to me, and he said, John, I said, yes, Dabney, he said, this here at the bottom of page 17, this is a joke. I said, yes, because I I wrote it because we're supposed to make things, people laugh occasionally in this dramedy. And he said, I don't do jokes, fix it. (laughs) So I, I, I fixed it. I made it as unfunny as I possibly could. And then we, we finished that episode, everybody with a smile on his face. <laughs> so Slap only lasted the one year. But I, when I worked at Slap, I worked for a wonderful comedy writer, a real genius, a guy named Jay Tarsus, who had created a series called Buffalo Bill a few years earlier. With yeah, with Dabney Coleman starring in it, and they had they had hated each other by the time it was over, and yet when Dabney got a a guarantee of thirteen episodes on the air, he said he wouldn't do it from ABC. He said he wouldn't do that, do them unless he had Jay Tarz's work. <laughs> so anyway, that was a that was a great experience um, for more unique reasons than. Uh, than the LA, the L A law thing and the Miami Vice thing every every show has its own dynamics and, and uh, personality and and mood I guess um, it's, uh, it's it's funny and I bounced around a lot so then I went from slap to wise guy which was a very well regarded series um, remembered. Mainly, maybe for the Mel Profit episodes where Kevin Spacey and, and Joan Severance played brother and sister, uh, and crooks, of course. Uh, and I did the second season of *Wise Guy*, which was uh, we uh, did a, a five-part par- or five-part arc on uh, on the Garment District, starring Jerry Lewis. And Ron Silver and Joan Chen, and we had we had casts that uh, you'd be lucky to get for a movie. It was amazing. Wise Guy was a very writerly show. Um, a guy named David Burke ran the writing staff. and He was uh, temperamental, not the easiest guy in the world to get along with, but lavishly talented. And we did, uh, you know, we did some very interesting stuff on there. And then we did. A, uh, a long arc uh, on uh, the rock and roll business and once again we had Debbie Harry uh, we had Glenn Frey from the Eagles all of whom turned out to, to be able to to act a little bit we had Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Picture Show we had Paul Winfield who impressed me because he walked in to meet with the writing staff and he, he told us he had just spent in, been in New York the night before where he'd been reading Langston Hughes at the 92nd Street Y. I thought that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: And then we then I then I went off to work on Midnight Caller, which is unfortunately not very well remembered series, but I, I had the best 2 years of my time in Hollywood working there. Um by this point I was uh,
1: a co-producer and then supervising producer. So um, let, me, let me take a stop just a second. <clears throat> you started off as a screenwriter, and then you became a script editor or, or a senior writer, and now you're talking about producer. Now, I, I've heard that so many times. I've seen it on the screen, uh, on movies, <laughs> and I've seen the screen uh, on te- television. What the heck does a producer do and is that, well, how is that different than a director? A producer,
0: producer, as you've no doubt figured out, is a pretty loose term. It gets applied to a lot of people. Um, in television, I won't even go into the producing thing in movies. When you see them up there to pick up an award, there's one award or one Oscar for eight guys. <laughs> you think, <laughs> hmm, who are they going to carve it up in pieces? Um, <laughs> in, in TV... Basically, producer can just be a writing position in TV. It can be other things too. You can be a line producer and actually be on the set and doing the day-to-day hard work, being putting in the long hours. Um, you can be a producer, you know, for a million reasons. You can be a producer because you're some, you're the star's agent or manager. Um, that all it all happens, but my you know when i I was hired as a staff writer, which is the absolute bottom rung. this would be on Miami Vice. and I got bumped up to story editor. So when I went to slap Maxwell, I was still a story editor, um which was I was just writing. Um, when I went to Wise Guy, I became executive story editor. When I went to Midnight Caller, I was a co-producer. And then my second season there, I was a supervising producer. I don't know that I supervised anything. I, I worked with some freelance writers, and and worked on their scripts. Um, you know, I was in casting sessions. I was in editing sessions. Um, you know, I was more involved than I than I had been, but I wasn't worried about making the budget or doing anything like that, you know, which is, which is the, you know, where good producers make, you know, you know, by, well, this is crass, but Boschka was once talking about a guy who had worked for him at Hill Street Blues and had had enormous success creating another show. And he said, he couldn't think of this guy as a producer. He said, he couldn't produce a bowel movement, so,
2: <laughs>
0: so, you know, and and had I been in, ever been in a position where I was running a show, I would have found the the greatest real producer I could to come and help me. That that's how I would have dealt with that problem, and then hopefully I would have learned something by working with him. So anyway, Midnight Caller we did traditional kind of cop shows. We did romantic comedies. We did social issues. Our, the premise of the show was our hero, Jack Killian, played by a wonderful actor named Gary Cole, was an, uh, an ex-San Francisco cop who had left the force after he'd killed, accidentally killed his partner and dived into a bottle, and then he had found a second life working as this midnight talk show host the Nighthawk Jack Killian um, and we had wonderful wonderful guest stars again we had uh, Roger Daltry from the who did a wonderful job for us um, Levon Helm from the band uh, Hoyd Axton who was a maniac country singer was played a crooked boxing promoter um, everywhere I went I did something with boxing <laughs> that was you are gonna do a boxing episode this year, aren't you? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I'm your boy. Um, And then after, then you saw the first my first six years in television were really wonderful. I don't I don't know what I did to deserve them, but I I worked for wonderful people on shows that I could really get invested in and, and just really enjoy. For the most part, you're always going to hit some bumps in the road. But, you know, it was just, I was just, uh, you know, living living the dream for a while. And then after Midnight Caller went off the air, I went to work on a series called Reasonable Doubts, which starred Marley Matlin, the the deaf actress from Children of a Lesser God, and uh, Mark Harmon, who's a a TV star. I mean, a really and truly, he's a TV star to this day uh, with NCIS. Uh, so, but it, I just wasn't right for the show and that became increasingly apparent. And I was a co-executive producer, so that was, that was an awkward and difficult year. But, um, then I was gonna, you know, I, so I, I left to see the show at the end of that season. They didn't have to ask me to leave. I I wanted to leave. (laughs) And then I was uh, going to write a Mike Tyson movie for HBO. And I was working for uh, a uh, wonderful old producer named Edgar Sherrick, who had put Wide World of Sports on the air when he was running ABC TV and had produced movies like Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run. It was just a a real character. I mean, you know, chewing hard candy, screaming for his assistance to come and help him, and and always knowing exactly where we were in the conversation that were he and I were having. It was a he was an astounding guy, a great mind. Uh, and, then, and as a side gig, at that same time, we were doing something at. Uh, Paramount, where we were trying to put *The Untouchables* back on the air as a TV series, that that didn't go too well, and I had a, a difference of opinion with the guy running that writing staff, and that was the end of me there. And then they, they changed executives. HBO changed executives on the Mike, uh, excuse me, on the Mike Tyson movie, and I got bounced out of that. So now, for the first time in my life. I don't have a gig in Hollywood, and that's that's an adjustment. When you when you basically you go a year and your phone doesn't ring. Uh, that that's that that's a test of of something. I'm not sure what. Uh, so I, I, I did some long pieces for Sports Illustrated. I had had a relationship with GQ. It started back in 1984, and I kept writing pieces for them. So I always had something in my typewriter or word processor that, uh, you know, would, would, would gave me evidence that I was still a writer. Um, and then, you know, I, I had this funny that I had agents. Agents that are a whole nother story. Well, listen, we can do an hour about them someday.
1: Well, but, uh, let's take a break right now because we're going to come back, uh, and I'm going to talk about another program that you are the co-producer of that everybody knows about. But um, we can talk about what happens during the the, the bumps that people go through, like per, even persons of great talent like yourself. Anyway, this is John Smotanek, run with respect, and we're talking to John Shulian, a, a screenwriter. Before that, a boxing and sports, uh, reporter and columnist, and a wholly interesting guy. He's very human and he's got his ups and downs in, in, his, in his very magical career. This is John Smitenka and we will be right back. We're now back on With Respect with John Shulian, sports writer, sports columnist, magazine sports writer, uh, uh, script writer, co-executive producer, co create wow, wow, I can't keep track of them all. Uh, <laughs> in, all over the United States. So this is John Smetanka run With Respect. So we, we left off and that you were going through a dry spell, which you magically filled with uh, articles for uh, GQ and for various... GQ and and Sports Illustrated. Those those,
0: those were where I had my accounts, yeah.
1: So, what happened from there?
0: Well, the interesting thing is I had been... I was represented by United Talent, which is a great agency. Uh, and, And I had all these macho kind of killer agents, all male, who were, when I was hot, they were always buzzing around talking about what they were going to do for me. And then when I cooled off considerably and was without a a gig in television, they magically disappeared. So, but there there were three female agents, women agents at, at UTA. And they took turns calling me and keeping my spirits up. They got me one gig doing a, a noir, it was a noir series based on, uh, on stories and books that were in public domain. And I wrote a, a really good script, one of the few that I would dare show anybody that I was really proud of. Um, and, uh, you know, so they kept me afloat. Then one day, my one of my agents, Nancy Jones called and said, John, you know, John, what do you think about Hercules? And I said, well, okay, let's go talk to the people who were doing Hercules. This is over at Universal. And they were doing, they had done five one-hour movies as part of an action pack. They'd also done a science fiction thing, a martial arts thing, and I forget what the other couple were. But I went over there, and I said that I saw the Hercules as a weekly series. Hercules is like a cowboy in a Western series. He's just wandering ancient Greece looking for villagers to help and, and pilgrims who are being robbed and that sort of nonsense. And, and they, they, they fell for it. So suddenly I found myself doing syndicated TV for Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert. Who had, who really were geniuses at making movies like Army of Darkness, Evil Dead, Darkman. They were they were they were really good at that, but they were very green as far as television went, and they, they had a, a lot of lessons to learn. I tried to teach them some of them, particularly Rob. Sam mostly was just resurrecting his career as a movie director. And, which he did quite wonderfully with Spider-Man. And, uh, but anyway, so I'm doing that, and then one day Rob comes to me and says he wants to do a, a female warrior in the hopes that she can be spun off into a series of her own. And I think, okay, well I, can, I can, let me just see what I can do. Um, and at the same time, I had been selling or pitching an a, a TV series about a boxer, and without any luck, there had been a guy at ABC who liked it, and he left the business. Um, and it was it was called The Ring, and it was a family drama. You had the young boxer, you had his father, who was an ex boxer, worked in a tannery, had a big gambling problem. His mother, who was getting ready to leave the old man because he was deep down a bum. Uh, His sister, who is the only college-educated person in the family and is trying to distance, distance herself from them. And his brother, who is in and out of trouble with the law. And I saw it as a novel for television. Five years, you see him go from pretender to contender, to champion. You see him fall in love. You see him become a father. You see him lose his title. You see him cheat on his wife, maybe destroy his marriage. And then you see him resurrected. It was a life. And so I wrote these two scripts, the one for the ring and the one for Hercules that introduced the female warrior. And... I thought this was a turning point in my career in Hollywood. Um, The the, the bad news for me was, the well, it was good news initially. There was a new president of TV at the Fox Network, a fellow named John Matoyan, and he loved my script for The Ring. It was one of his two favorite scripts that year. But he couldn't get his head around two things. One, it was too bleak, and two, it was too blue-collar. And I thought, well, rich kids don't fight. They don't get their noses broken willingly. And as far as bleak, I didn't understand bleak, because this was about a kid chasing his dream. And that was what I was, the message I was trying to impart in this was that it's okay to dream. You've got to have dreams. That's what keeps us going. Because it keeps us in the race. But uh, they, uh, they ultimately never shot the script. And I think 10 years later, because I was on my way out of the business, they uh, I ran into one of the young executives who'd been at Fox then, and he said that, that he thought the ring was the greatest pilot they never did. So, you know, <clears throat> What are you going to do? Meanwhile, the female warrior is is cooking along, and we we are going to shoot three episodes with her. I will write the first one and the third one. And a guy who I worked very closely with on her, a fellow named Bob Belak, would do the second one. So we cast a little cupcake of an actress to play this warrior princess who has name whose name happened to be Xena. And we cast this delicate flower named Vanessa Angel. And we sent her to horseback riding lessons and martial arts lessons. And we just wanted to butcher her up a little bit so she could look semi-believable. Um, but she was just, I mean, she was beautiful. But beyond that, she didn't really strike fear in anybody's heart. (laughs) So the week between Christmas and New Year's is the deadest week in Hollywood all year. There's nobody in town. And we get a call from Vanessa Angel, who's in London visiting her family, saying that she's deathly ill and she can't travel to shoot. The the, the the three episodes of Hercules. You know, we're introducing her as Xena. So we are out of luck. We have nobody to play Zena. Rob and Sam know every B movie actress in the world, and they we looked at blonde Zenas and redheaded Zenas and black Zenas and Asian Zenas and Latino Zenas, Martian Zenas. I mean, it was incredible, and we we're just striking out everywhere. Finally, a young producer named David Icke pipes up and says, what about Lucy Lawless? And we had used Lucy in some early episodes of Hercules. We said, yeah. Well, we shot Hercules and Xena in New Zealand, which is a wonderful place to work. Great crews, great people, interesting scenery. Every time you turned around, you go... Shoot a beach scene in the morning and be up in the mountains in the snow in the afternoon, uh, and so we called Lucy, because she was—I uh, think she was panning for gold in Australia or something. She's a native New Zealander, and she said, "Oh, that would be cool." So we hire her, but we don't know what what it's going to be like. So I finally I get the first day's dailies. I put them in my VCR. This is in 1995. First show up for the new year. And I see her, and she's riding a horse and swinging a sword. And she spots a band of uh, pilgrims being robbed. And she rides down to their rescue, and jumps off the horse, swinging her sword, clocking a stuntman every now and again. You hear guys going, ouch (laughs) (laughs) she didn't know how to pull a punch i'm not sure she ever completely learned but and i look at her and i said my god she's xena she was perfect she was perfect i can't tell you she looked great she's a strapping woman with great eyes beautiful eyes um She's intelligent, well-read, worked hard, no attitude, just really was, was a dream to work with. And honestly, I, I've made more than my fair share of money for Zenith coming up as a co-creator with Rob Tappert. But I should probably kick back something to Lucy because if Lucy doesn't play that part, There, Zena dies after three episodes of Hercules, but she just owned it. It was it was um it was it was a miracle. I've often thought of successful TV and movie ventures as miracles in some either in a large way or a small way, and this was in a large way.
1: Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time today, and. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about, uh, not only about Lucy Lawless, uh, but um, how actors and actresses make a, a, a production, even though they didn't write it. They, they just all of a sudden, they create something beyond um, the, the script writer, actually, or beyond the creator of the, the, the co-creator. But unfortunately, we'll have to do that on another show uh, at some point in the future. So, John Shulian, thank you very much for chatting with us about your life, your your fascinating life, and also about the the world that you the worlds that you've lived in so far, which is sports writing, boxing, script writing, Hollywood, television, all of this. So, thank you very much for your time, and we'll be back to you again.
0: It's been a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.
1: The name of our program is With Respect. We're on every week. And remember, our program has a mantra. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.